The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. I invite you, if you would, to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 10. I want to read to you. Matthew chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. I'll read down to about verse 25. Matthew writes, And he called to him his twelve disciples, and he gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out, to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the twelve apostles are these. First Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, Simon, the Canaanian, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. These twelve Jesus sent out, instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You receive without paying, give without pay. Acquire no gold or silver, nor copper for your belts, no bag for your journey, nor two tunics, nor sandals, nor a staff, for the laborer deserves his food. And whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it's not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable or bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts, and they'll flog you in their synagogues. You'll be dragged before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. And when they deliver you over, don't be anxious how you're to speak or what you're to say, for what you're to say will be given to you in that hour. For it's not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Your brother will deliver over brother to death and father his child, and children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. And you'll be hated by all for my name's sake. The one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. The disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It's enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they've called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they malign those of his household? Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we, uh, we thank you for your gospel, the good news that men and women, people like us, people who you created in your image, who you made to love and serve you, who've 
who've willfully chosen to rebel against you and reject you in a numerous ways that people like us can be like we heard sung a moment ago washed clean and made whole be forgiven of our sins and our rebellion and be made right and reconciled to you redeemed justified declared not guilty and all this comes because of what you've done for us on the cross by the the shedding of your blood, the giving of your life in our place, taking our penalty that we might receive your righteousness. We might be able to place our faith and trust in you and what you've done for us. Be granted eternal life, forgiveness of our sins. We thank you for that message. We thank you that somewhere along the way in our lives, those of us who are believers in the Lord Jesus, that somebody told us that message. Pray that you would continue to motivate us as believers, perhaps even this morning through the text before us, to be goers, be people who go, and take this message to other people who need to hear it. Overcome our fears, overcome our anxieties, overcome our laziness, overcome our self-centeredness, our, our, uh, Lord, our, our uh, love for the world around us. Drive us out of our comfort zones. That your gospel might go in power into our city and all around the world. For your glory and for your honor, we pray. Amen. Well, we have been uh, in all really all the month of January working through sort of a, uh, a series that we've jumped around a bit, dealing with sort of building off of one of our core values as a church. We talk about as a church, we're a church that is committed to growing in order that we might go. That we care about growing in our faith, but we care about growing in our faith not as an end in of itself, just so we can say, boy, look how well we've grown, uh, or look how smart we are, or look how well we know the Bible, or how uh, awesome we are at uh, the, the, the intricacies of theology. But our goal is always in our growth that it might propel us to go somewhere and talk to somebody else about who Jesus is and how they can know Him and be made right with Him. And so we've been focusing on that for several weeks, and we started with sort of a charge to you, a reminder of that call out of the Scripture, that we're all called as believers to go. That this isn't a special calling upon pastors, it isn't a special call upon people with a particular gift of evangelism, it is a call to every believer, anyone who knows the Lord Jesus, to go and find somebody else who doesn't know Him and tell them what you know. We followed that up by a couple of weeks of just sort of laying down what is the foundational message. What is the gospel? What does it mean? What does someone need to hear and understand and know in order to be a Christian? And we walked through that over two weeks' time. If you were here, uh, you can go online to the website and you can, uh, you can hear those two sermons where we walk through the gospel. We need to know what that message is. If we're going to go and talk to people about Jesus and talk to them about how they can be redeemed and how they can be made right with Him, uh, we need to know what it is that they need to know so that we can share it with them. So we spent a couple of weeks on that. And then finally, really two weeks ago, um, I I taught from Matthew chapter 9, the very end of Matthew chapter 9, where Jesus just looks out over a crowd of people who've gathered, who've been following him, and and he looks over them and he says to his disciples, the the harvest is plentiful, uh, but the laborers are few. There's a lot of people who need the message, but there's not very many people who are going. 
There's a harvest of judgment that's coming, and all of these people who have not heard the gospel are, are, are sitting under the judgment of God. And if somebody doesn't get out there and tell them, they will die and they will face eternal hell for their sins. It's a dire need. And there's few people who hear the call and are willing to go. I planned to stop with that message a couple of weeks ago, but in my study of that, I, I bled over into chapter 10, and I just thought, well, uh, we need to talk about this a little bit. Uh, and so I want to this morning, uh, uh, sort of in a flyby of Matthew chapter 10, these, these verses 5 through 25, there's no way we'll go into our normal detail with a text that large. You'll be here until the next oyster roast if, uh, if we tried that. But um, what I do want to do is I want to... I want to pull some principles out of here because really the context of Matthew 10 is this. Jesus is sending out his disciples for the very first time to go do ministry on their own. What he's been training them to do, what they've been watching him do now for a couple of years' time, he is going to launch them out to do on their own. He says the the harvest is plentiful and the laborers are few. He says you need to pray for laborers to go. And really right on the heels of him telling them to pray for laborers, he's going to say, and by the way, you're the first answer to your prayer. You're praying for laborers, I'm sending you. By the way, how many of you are doing 938? Matthew 9.38. You got it on your phones? Is it going to ring at 9.38 in the morning or at night to remind you to pray that prayer? God, the harvest is plentiful. Send some people. I hope you're doing it. Um, And so Jesus turns and he's getting ready to launch them out. And in Matthew 10 here, this first section, the first 25 verses and a little beyond that, he's launching them out and he's sort of commissioning them. He's, he's, he's sending them out and he's got a little message to give them. He, he needs them to understand some things about what it's like when you go out and do what he's been doing. They need to understand some foundational principles about what they're going to face and some things that they need to know mentally to prepare themselves to go and do what he's called them to do. Now, there are some unique things that they did that we don't do. But the principles that he lays out for them are principles that I think are critical for us to understand if we're going to actually go and take the gospel to people who don't know it. And so I want to pull some of those principles out for you this morning of this text, sort of in a flyby. Uh, I'm going to have to edit on the fly because my tendency is to want to dig in and, uh, and we'll never, never get to the rest if I do that. So let, let's just uh, kind of do this. Jesus sending the apostles out, okay? In the beginning of uh, verse 7, uh, he tells them what their mission is. In the beginning of verse 7, he says this, Proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. Now, Jesus is commissioning them, and he says, Your ministry is really going to be a two-pronged ministry. It's a ministry that's going to involve you saying some things and delivering a message, and it's also going to involve you doing some things practically in the lives of people. Now, uh, the two prongs are this. Preach the word, preach the gospel, and then the second uh, sort of prong of their ministry, we could summarize by calling it mercy ministry. It's, I'm going to send you out, and I want you to engage people on two levels. On the one level, you need to deliver the message of the gospel so that they can be saved. But on the other level, you need to understand that people are hurting, and they're suffering, and they need relief in a very practical sort of a way in their life. And so I'm going to uniquely empower you to be able to deliver that kind of relief, that kind of mercy in their lives. You're going to encounter people who are sick. You're going to encounter people who are... Uh, lepers. You're going to encounter people who are, who are demon-controlled. And so just as I've had the unique 
power and authority to resolve those situations miraculously. I'm going to entrust you with that same authority to be able to do that. Now, it is my firm belief that that is not the authority that the Lord gives to everybody throughout history. The, the apostles were in a unique place in the history of the church. They were, they were the foundation of the New Testament church. And there was no written Bible at the time, at least New Testament-wise, for them. And so the Lord uniquely empowered them to take His gospel. And he, he, he told them to preach the message. And then He attended to that message by giving them the ability to miraculously do things that would captivate people's attention and, and help them to see that the message that they were preaching was the truth and not something made up. But the principle here is this, that the ministry that the apostles were launched in, and I think it's the same kind of ministry that we're called to, is a ministry that really has two prongs. On the one hand, we're called to deliver a message. He says proclaim the message. That word proclaim is a word that means to, to publicly announce, to, uh, to herald, to message, to, to preach, if you will, a message. And it's the gospel. Uh, we're to go out and we're to deliver the people the gospel. They need to understand that there's a God. They need to understand that they are created in His image. They need to understand that they're sinners who rebelled against Him. They need to understand that their penalty for that is eternal death. They need to know that there's nothing that they can do by way of good works or religious actions that can resolve that problem. That their only hope is what Jesus, the Son of God, has done for them. Dying on the cross, paying the price in their place. And that their only hope is to entrust their lives to Him believe upon Him and give Him their lives and turn from their sinfulness and follow Him. That's it. They need to know that message. But as we deliver that message, we also are, are sensitive to the fact that people live suffering lives in this world. It's a world that brings suffering in various ways. And part of the ministry of the gospel is recognizing and being sensitive to the ways people suffer. And recognizing the Lord has often given us the ability or the means to bring relief into people's suffering in various ways. And then as we go out and share the gospel, we're living the gospel by loving them like we love the Lord. By helping them where they have needs. We attempted to do that piece of it uh, just last weekend when we uh, you know, did a, a little event for Coast Guard families who were part of our community, who were suffering and been paid. So it was our attempt to go into their lives and say, we recognize your suffering and we want to be some small part of alleviating that pain in your life because we love Jesus. And on His behalf, we come into your life to be a help. And, and I, I point this out before we really get into these major principles because I think it's really important that understanding gospel ministry revolves around loving people, giving them the message but also doing what we can to relieve their suffering. There is a strain within the Reformed evangelical world that I've actually encountered a number of times this year and on a couple of occasions from within this congregation where, where the, uh, the message seems to be, Pastor, it really isn't our job to, uh, to go out and, and, and organize into, into groups to go do evangelism. I mean, we really, we're not about mercy ministry. We, we, just, we just give the gospel. That's all we do is just give the gospel and whatever the Lord does, He does. But here, it doesn't seem to be the way the Lord launched out His apostles. He sent them out with a two-pronged ministry. Take the message of the gospel and relieve human suffering. You need both. If you, if you get it out of balance and you do one without the other, then you get messed up. Because if you go around just doing mercy ministry, relieving people's suffering, and you never quite get around to giving them the gospel, the best you've done is help their bodies 
and condemn their soul. And that doesn't help anybody, really. But if, on the other hand, you go around just pounding people with the message of the gospel and you ignore how they're hurting when you have the means to help, that's not loving. And it undercuts the message. A balanced evangelistic ministry for you as an individual, with your neighbors, or for us as a church is one that encounters humanity around us and understands they need the gospel to be saved, but they also need to encounter the love of Jesus through his people who have the means to help them when they're struggling and when they're suffering. Because when we come at it that way, the gospel goes out in power just as it did with these disciples. And so that's what they did, this, this two-pronged ministry. It wasn't one or the other, it was both. And Jesus consistently modeled this. He was incredibly direct with, with sort of delivering the truth, but he was also incredibly compassionate toward human suffering. And he came at this with both, with both levels, and he called his disciples to do the same thing. And so he launches them out on this two-pronged ministry, doing both, just as he's been doing. And as he launches them out, he, he, he understands that he's sending them with some questions in their minds. There are some things that they don't know as they go out, but there are some things that they do know. And as we walk through this text this morning, that's kind of what I want to show you. What are the things that they didn't know, and what are the things that they did know? Because they're also the same things that when we launch out to do ministry, there are things that we don't know. And there are some things that we do know. And we need to understand the difference. And so I'm going to kind of organize uh, what I had to say that way uh, this morning, if you're just looking for bullet points or something to sort of hang these thoughts on. When, when, when the apostles were launched out, or when you're launched out, here's one thing you don't know. We don't know how God is going to provide for our needs when we go. We don't know how God is going to provide for our needs. What we do know is that when we walk by faith... God will provide for our needs. And he lays that out for them in the first couple of verses here. At the end of verse 8 through verse 10, he tells them to go. And listen to what he tells them. He says, you received without paying, give without pay. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey, or two tunics or sandals or a staff for the laborer deserves his food. Now you look at that and you go, what is all that about? What is all that? We get to don't take money for what you're doing, peace, right? We get that. Don't carry a, a bag for your journey. A bag was just sort of, you know, loosely, kind of like a little bag that you could carry around your waist or maybe some sort of a knapsack where you would put extra things that you'd need for a journey to carry along, your extra money or whatever. You're going to Disney World. you got your fanny pack on, right? you got your stuff that you need for the trip in there. And um, you understand how that works. And Jesus says, but I, listen, on this mission, don't take any of that stuff. Just set out. You don't need any of those things. Now, that's kind of an odd thing to say because normally when any of us would, would take off on a trip to go do anything, we would, we would invest some time planning and preparing, right, and putting together some things that we need for that journey. I mean, who just launches out without preparing and without planning? I mean, you think about that. When you, when you go for a vacation, you know, do you just wake up one day and say, hey, we're out of here, and you just jump in your car with your clothes on your back and go? No, you plan this stuff out, right? You, you plan it out. You plan what you, what you, you know, you look at the weather where you're going and you plan out your wardrobe and you think, okay, here's what we need, all these little pieces, and you put all that together. You pack up some extra clothes as a backup in case you lose something, whatever. But here Jesus says, don't do any of that. I want you to set out on the work, and I don't want you to take extra money. I don't want you to take extra clothes. I don't want you to take extra anything. You just go to the next town and, and get rolling. 
Now, I want to make two comments about this. First, I want to say this. This was a unique calling for the disciples. Jesus isn't setting a prescriptive standard for all ministry hereafter. He's not saying that the way that you go about doing ministry is you launch out with the clothes on your back and that's it. But he did tell them to do that. We know that he isn't laying that out prescriptively because later on he, he, uh, he, he sends them out with provisions. And Paul talks about later um, how we set up provisions and, and so forth. But uh, they're sent out this time specifically with nothing. And it's because of a reason. Jesus is launching them for the first time and he needs them to understand something very, very, very clearly at the very outset of their ministry. And that is this. He will always provide everything they need. They need to know this. And they need to know it dramatically. Because if you, if you know anything about the lives of the apostles after Jesus' death and resurrection, you know that their lives were challenging. They had a ministry and a calling that faced all sorts of circumstances that were unimaginable. And they needed to know at the very beginning that wherever you go, whatever you do, I'm going to supply your needs. And so Jesus uses a dramatic way to teach them that lesson. He says, go out and don't take anything with you. And just watch and see what I do. Watch and see what I do. In fact, we know this was a a lesson in that because in Luke chapter 22, uh, Luke records this in verse 35. uh, Jesus is about to send them out again. And he says this, and he said to them, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? It's like saying, guys, hey, you remember back in the day when I sent you the first time and I told you to take off with nothing? And they're probably all going, yeah, we remember that one, Jesus. And he asked them a question, did you lack anything? And their answer was what? Nothing. No, we didn't lack a thing. Nope, we didn't lack a thing. And he says to him this time, but now let the one who has a money bag take it, and the likewise a knapsack, and let the one who has uh, no sword sell his cloak and go get a sword. I mean, he tells him, prepare for this next one. I needed you to know last time what it was like to follow me with nothing, and you learned the lesson. You went out with nothing, and what did you lack? You lacked absolutely nothing because I provided every single thing you needed the whole way. Okay, now that you got that lesson, prepare and go do ministry. But I love this passage because that has been the testimony of every man and every woman who's ever launched out to do anything for the Lord Jesus Christ. When they come back on the backside of it, you ask them the question, did you lack anything you needed? And the answer is always, inevitably, not a thing. Not a thing. I've watched a bunch of people leave and go on mission trips before where they were terrified. I've watched a lot of people go across the street in their neighborhood to go tell their neighbor about Jesus, terrified. But always on the back side. Did you lack anything? Was there anything that you needed that you didn't have, that he didn't provide? Never. Never. We don't know how he's going to provide it, but Jesus is saying, just trust me and go, and I will provide it. I'll do it. The disciples didn't know. They set out walking down the street with the clothes on their back. They had no idea how Jesus was going to provide them food. They had no idea how he was going to provide them a place to sleep. They had no idea how he was going to provide anything that they needed along the way. All that they had was a promise from him is, if you'll go, I'll take care of you. And they went and he took care of them. He, needed to let, he really needed them to understand. They needed to let go of all the things that they had put their trust in and live by faith trusting him. The stuff that we have clutters up our life. And we begin to depend on it and trust in it instead of Him. And sometimes Christ has to get us to a place where He takes away some of those things from our life and reminds us that our trust doesn't belong in our stuff that clutters up our life. Our trust belongs in Him. 
He has to sometimes take things out of our life to remind us, you know what, you're not your own supply, I'm your supply. So for this little season of life, I'm going to take away your job for a little while. And you're not going to know where your next paycheck is going to come from. And you're going to have to look up and you're going to have to trust me. And ministry is like that. Taking the gospel is like that. When God calls you to go out to somebody or to some place or somewhere to take the gospel, you're not always going to know what you need for the journey. And you're not going to always know how God's going to provide that. If you're waiting around for a day when you're going to know all that stuff before you ever go, guess what? You'll never go. You'll never go. But God has always called His people to go on out. Just go. Go trust me. I'll take care of you. I'll provide all of your needs. All of it. Every single thing. You'll lack nothing. That's hard for us. That's hard for us. I'm sure it was hard for the apostles. It was hard for them. It's hard for you and I. You and I, we, we get anxious when we don't have control of how things are going to turn out, don't we? Let's just have a little moment of confession here. Just me and you, nobody else. I won't tell anyone. How many of you get a little anxious when you start feeling like you're in a season of life where you don't have control? Come on, let's just be honest. I'm going to raise my hand nice and high. How many of you are much more comfortable in life when you have control over all the circumstances around you? Oh, yeah. Right? When there's money in the bank, the mortgage is paid. You know, you know what's coming next week. You've got a handle on your job. Everything is just kind of rocking and rolling. We love it like that. That's how we want life to be all the time. But when all of a sudden things start getting moved around and all of a sudden things are out of, our, out of control, we get anxious and we get afraid. We, we fool ourselves into believing we can control our own circumstances and that we are in control of our own destiny and that we're in control of what we need. At the end of the day, Christ is the one who is our supply. And sometimes He has to remind us He's all we need. But he had told them about this earlier in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24. Uh, Jesus had already taught them this principle. And in in great Jesus fashion, he teaches them a principle, and then later he launches them out to have to live it out. He doesn't allow them just to sit in the training room, right, and learn it mentally and say, oh, yeah, I got that. He puts them in life situations where now they have to either do it or not. Back in uh, chapter 6 of Matthew, Jesus said, listen, I tell you, don't be anxious about your life what you'll eat or what you'll drink, nor about your body, what you'll put on. That's interesting, because what specifically does he tell them this time not to take with them? Food and clothes. The same things that he's already taught them. Don't worry about these things. And he gives them illustrations. Look at the birds of the air. They don't don't sow, they don't reap or gather in the barns. But yet, your heavenly Father feeds them. Aren't you more valuable than they are? And he says, look around. Look at the lilies of the field. They grow. They don't, they don't work. They don't spin. But I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. If God clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown in the oven, will he not much more clothe you? Oh, you have little faith. Therefore, don't be anxious, saying, what are we going to eat? What are we going to drink? What are we going to wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things. Get this. Your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. He knows that you need all these things. So here's what you need to do. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And all these other things, 
they'll be added to you. So don't be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Okay, so am I the only one in here that struggles with that piece? But Jesus lays it out so clearly. You don't have to worry about these things. If you belong to me, I will provide for your needs every single day. And when you go out and take the gospel, it's no different. It's no different. I'll provide for you. And so Jesus taught them that a while back, and now he's saying, go out there. Don't take extra clothes. Don't take extra money. Don't take extra food. When you go out there, you need to trust me. I'm going to, I've told you I'll give you these things. I'm either going to do it or I'm not. Do you believe? Do you have faith? It's similar to an Old Testament example of, of uh, Abraham. Do you remember Abraham in the Old Testament? Father Abraham had many sons. You know the song? Many sons had Father Abraham. Yeah. So God says to Abraham, Abraham, pick up, take your family, and I want you to head out to a land that I'm going to show you. Well, which land? Just head out, Abraham. Well, which direction? Just head out, Abraham. Well, what about where are the details? Do I go this way? How long is it going to take? What's going to happen along the way? Not your problem, Abraham. That's my problem. You just get up and go. I'll take care of your needs. And he did. So what's the application for us as far as taking the gospel out to, uh, to the people around us? The application is this. A lack of supply of anything is never an excuse for Christians to not share their faith. We can never excuse our lack of evangelism by saying we don't have what we need. I don't have enough fill-in-the-blank. Knowledge, training, experience, whatever. Whatever it is that goes in that blank in your life that keeps you from going out and sharing your faith, that you say, boy, I'll go out and share my faith one day when I have a little more blank. Whatever goes in that blank. You need to erase the blank. Lack of supply is never an excuse for not going out and sharing our faith because Jesus has provided for every need. And He's promised when we go, He'll supply. To say I lack something that I need in order to do this is to call into question His faithfulness and His truthfulness. It's to say, you know, Jesus, I know you've said this, but I don't believe it. I don't believe it. I think I need something that you haven't given. And the implications of that are pretty significant. Let me say it this way. If God has put lost people in the orbit of your life, there is nothing that you need that you don't have right this second to go tell them the gospel. There's nothing. You've got everything you need. One of Satan's most, I think, effective strategies to kill Christian evangelism is to fill believers with fear and anxiety about outcomes. It's to fill us up with fear and anxiety about outcomes. He shuts down more people in their their evangelistic efforts by just creating inside their hearts fear and anxiety about what might happen and how it might turn out than anything. And in response to that, Jesus just knocks on your door of your life. Let's use that language. And he says this. Child, what are you afraid of? What are you so anxious about? I love the lilies. I love the birds. I take care of them and they don't do any of this stuff. Don't you think I'll take care of you? If I call you to do something, don't you think I'll give you what you need to do it? 
Get out there and do it. We don't know how He's going to meet our needs, but we do know He will meet our needs. There's something else we don't know and something else we do know. Do you want to know what that is? Hmm? I'm just asking to see if you're awake. Another thing we don't know. We don't know when we go who will respond to the message. We have no idea. When you and I go out to share our faith with somebody, we have no clue who's going to respond to the message positively. No idea. When I preach, I have no idea who's going to listen. I have no idea who's going to believe anything I say. I have no idea who's going to do anything about it. No clue whatsoever. But you know what we do know? Here's what we do know. We do know that some people will respond to the message. We don't know who will, but we know for sure Jesus guarantees that there are people who will respond to the message. And this is probably the most glorious thing in this whole text that I want you to really capture because it is so, it is so freeing when you capture it. It frees you from your fears and your anxieties so often to understand that when you go, there are going to be people who will listen and who will believe and who will respond. Matthew chapter 10, verse 11 through 13. Listen to what Jesus says to these guys. He says, whatever town and village you go, whatever town and village you enter, find out who's worthy in it and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. If the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. And if it's not worthy, let your peace return to you. Now that sounds kind of muddled. What is all this about being worthy and letting peace come and go and all that kind of stuff? Let me walk this through for you. Think about this. When you plan your vacation, what kind of things do you plan out? You know, you're going to take a trip to, to, to Colorado. It's probably really frozen in Colorado right now. But if you like skiing, let's pretend we're all going to go skiing in Colorado. What kind of things do we do when we make a trip plan? We, we chart out, what is one of the first things you're going to plan out? You're going to have somewhere to stay at night, right? So you're going to go online to Travelocity or Expedia or wherever it is you go. And you're going to look at hotels and motels. And you're going to scan all those. You're going to say, well, this was four stars. We're going to read all the reviews of nasty customers who found a roach in their room or whatever. And you're going to spend hours trying to plan out where it is you want to sleep at night when you go there, right? So you're going to plan a place to sleep. You're going to plan a place to, uh, uh, you know, to, to find some food. You know, you're going to find a, a hotel. It needs to be near the Cracker Barrel because I need a good breakfast in the morning and that kind of stuff. The Waffle House because they never close and so forth. But we map out our trips and we plan all the details. But Jesus... Here tells them, listen, you're not going to plan any of those details out. I want you to just take off, and you're going to go to the town. You're going to start sharing the gospel. And when you find somebody worthy, stay with them. What does that mean? What is he talking about when he says, find somebody who's worthy in the town? Well, he's simply talking about who's the worthy person. The person who's worthy is the one who listens to the message and receives it. it he's saying, when you go, you go out and you start sharing your faith. You start telling the gospel. And eventually, you're going to find people who receive that message and will also receive you. Go stay with them. How do you like that message? How comfortable are you with that? Somebody in that town is going to receive the message and they're going to receive the messenger. Everywhere you go, this is the implication, everywhere you go, there's going to be somebody who's going to receive that message and there's going to be somebody who's going to be willing to take you into their house and let you sleep there and give you food. Now, they, they were just to go out and look for receptive hearts, look for fertile soil for the gospel, people who were open to the message. They were looking for hospitable people. Now, their culture was different than ours. That doesn't work out like this in our culture. But in their culture, there weren't very many, you know, double tree hotels. There, were, there weren't very many of those things around. There were some hotels, but they were largely seedy places known for prostitution and thievery. So, 
you know, if you're traveling, that's probably not the place you want to go if you're a reputable person. So the culture was set up in such a way that people were very used to welcoming travelers into their home. That was normal. You know, people traveling through town, you found travelers, you'd offer to have them come stay at your house, and you'd give them food and lodging until it was time for them to go. And that was just the normal way people operated in that day and age. And so it was just expected that that you would take people in. And so Jesus says, look, go into the town, take the gospel, and you're going to find people there who are going to believe the message, and they're going to believe you, and they're going to open up their home, and they're going to let you stay, and they're going to give you food. They're going to give... There's always going to be people who are going to receive the message, and there's always going to be people who receive the messenger. In the back of my mind, I'm thinking, if I'm one of those disciples, I'm thinking, yeah, Jesus, but what happens if there's nobody who believes it? Where am I going to sleep? What if nobody believes it? What's going to fill my growling belly? And you understand that Jesus doesn't leave that as an open option. The understanding is wherever you go, there will be someone who will hear. There will be somebody who will listen. There will be somebody who believes. And there will be somebody who will take you in. You won't go without. There's always going to be positive results when you go out sharing the gospel somewhere. He doesn't tell them who will believe in each city. He just tells them. It doesn't like say, go, go to the Barney's house. They're over on, you know, 2nd Street. When you go there, they're nice people. I think they'll listen to you. And they'll let you stay over at their house. He doesn't give them any of that. He just says, go until you find somebody who listens. And everywhere they went, guess what they found? In every town. There was people who believed the message. And there were people who took them in. Everywhere. Everywhere. Listen to this. When it comes to sharing our faith and evangelizing the world around us, God is responsible for preparing people's hearts and for generating the results. Did you catch that? God is responsible for preparing people's hearts and for generating the results. That's God's lane. That's not my lane. I can't prepare anybody's heart and I can't generate results. I can't do either of those. God is responsible for those two things. My responsibility, like the apostles, is to go herald the gospel and to persuade people to believe it. And as I go about doing that, I'm going to find people all the time where their hearts are prepared and God is going to call them to faith through the message preached, always and in every case. This is the doctrine of the sovereignty of God. It's Jesus reminding them, hey, I'm in charge of salvation. And I have people all over the place that are ready to respond. You just get out there and take the message, and you watch and see. Everywhere you go, I'm going to call people to myself through what you do. Everywhere. You just get out there and share, and you'll see there's going to be results. You know, early on in pastoral ministry, in the early years when I was doing this, I kind of grew up in sort of a, a typical Southern Baptist church. And the way that preaching worked was, this was the model I had, you know, growing up. The preacher got up here and did what I'm doing today. He preached the message. And he would always, at the end of the message, offer uh, people an opportunity to respond to the gospel in some way. And we'd sing 18 verses of Just As I Am and ask people to come to the front of the church and meet the pastor and shake his hand and tell him he want to be a Christian. That was the only thing I had ever seen. And I sat through endless sermons where the poor pastor has preached his heart out And he's just standing up there by himself through 18 verses of Just As I Am. And nobody is coming forward to trust Jesus. 
And that was all I, I thought that was just the way it was, that you were supposed to preach and persuade people. And if you did a good job, people would listen and come to Christ. And if you did a crappy job, you'd sing 18 verses of Just As I Am and go eat lunch. But early in ministry, I struggled with that because you would preach and preach and nobody responds to the gospel. And you begin to think, man, I must be, I, I must, I must be awful. I must be really bad at this. Now, truth is, I probably was really bad at it. But that wasn't the point. That wasn't the point. The point is, I think, as pastors and as individual believers, we sometimes mistakenly begin to believe that we're the ones responsible for the results. And we are not ever responsible for the results. God prepares hearts. He generates results. We are responsible to herald the gospel and call people to believe it. Persuade them to believe it, Paul says. Second Corinthians. The reality is, when I now... That was such a... It was such a uh, 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 that it was such a thought and a truth that changed my life and actually my ministry. Because now I understand when I go in, into a crowd, if, if it's a complete crowd of strangers, I don't know anybody in the room. What I do know is this, that there are some people out there that Christ is working in already. I know that because He's promised it right here in other places. That Christ is at work in people's hearts. He's softening their hearts. He's preparing their hearts. There are people out there who will hear it, who will believe, who will respond, who will be transformed by the power of the spoken and preached word of the gospel. I don't have to know who they are. I just go preach. I just go take the message, and God generates the results. When you go out into the world sharing your faith, if you do this consistently, you will find this to be true. There will be plenty of people who will reject the message. But there will be plenty of people who receive it as well. There always will be. Always will be. Talked to somebody not long ago. Said, "Yeah, I tried to share my faith with this person, and they flat out just shut me down. And they were so discouraged, they didn't do it again. So discouraged. I had to encourage that brother. Just keep doing it. Just keep sharing your faith. God's got people out there. You don't know who they are. I don't know who they are. They don't have like a red light on their head or anything that says, "Hey, I'm ready." They're just smiling like everybody else through life. But when you give them the gospel, you'll know. You'll know." The most vivid example I have of this in my life was my college roommate. <clears throat> His name was John, and John and I had had gone to uh, high school together. Uh, and I, you know, I'd grown up in church, and I'd grown up uh, sort of as a whatever it means uh, a leader in my youth group at church. I came to Christ when I was young, and so it was always sort of around the gospel. John was a kid at, at school that I had known. Uh, we just kind of come up through elementary and high school together, and uh, John was kind of that guy who was never really quite with the crowd that you were in. He was just kind of always on the periphery of it. But he was kind of the guy that wanted to be, but just for whatever reason, he was quirky and a little, little strange and just didn't fit, right? Uh, but anyway, uh, we ended up going to Clemson uh, to start college. And John uh, was my roommate for that first semester at Clemson. And uh, I was connected to a church up in, in Easley, South Carolina. And for whatever reason at that season of my life, at some point that semester, God just really burned my heart for John's faith. Now, I knew John had grown up in an Episcopal church in Somerville. Uh, but I had, never, I had never talked to John about the gospel before. And it was during that semester <clears throat> that uh, uh, I became convicted that I needed to. And uh, I was just terrified, honestly. I, I was terrified. Uh, I, I got a little gospel tract, a little booklet that walked you through the gospel. 
from my pastor at the time. And I remember sitting in my uh, little dorm room there in Norris Hall at Clemson, uh, waiting for John to get back from doing his laundry. You know, just real twitchy, you know, and nervous. And uh, so John comes into the room and he puts his laundry basket down. And, and I said, John, there's something I want to talk to you about. And, uh, and I'm telling you, it was what commenced from that sentence on was, again, one of the worst gospel presentations you've ever seen in your life. I mean, honestly, it was me handshaking, you know, flipping through this book and just reading the words off of the, each page, you know, like page two, page three. And it was so bad in my own heart, I'm thinking as this is going along, when this is over, he's going to laugh me out of this room. I was ready to laugh me out of the room, and I was the one talking. And at this little particular track at the very end, at the last page, it it says there, uh, you know, what you're supposed to say, and you're supposed to sort of, uh, uh, you know, close the deal, so to speak. You know, you're supposed to say, based on what you've heard, um, do you want to receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior today? And I almost didn't even read that off of there, honestly, because I just knew this has been bad. But I did because it was on the page and he'd already seen it. So I thought, which way do I look stupider? You know, so um, I know stupider is not a word, honey. It's more stupid. I got you. Um, So I feebly read that sentence, and I'll never forget this as long as I live. So, you know, he's sitting right here, and I got this little track, and he looks down, he looks up at me, and he said, that's exactly what I need to do. And I was so stunned, I didn't know what to do. I didn't know what to say. I was totally unprepared for that. I was so convinced that he was going to laugh me out of that room that I, I didn't know what to say. I thought, so I'm stumbling at this point. I'm, I'm, you know, now it's not on the paper anymore. Now I'm winging it. Well, well, uh, I, 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 I think we should pray. You know, do you want me to pray with you? And he said this. He said, no, I think I'll do that myself. And I'm like, thank you, Jesus, because I don't even know where I would have went with that at this point, you know. And John goes over and he kneels by his bed and he just says this beautiful prayer to, to receive Christ into his life. And, and, and that, that, that one event, that one evangelistic moment has stuck with me my whole life so vividly because it was a clear example of what I'm trying to tell you. God has people ready. It doesn't depend upon your, your charisma or your knowledge or your ability to convince people. It just depends upon your willingness to go. I mean, even if you believe me, when I tell you, believe me, you can feebly read a gospel off of a track with a shaken hand, and God will redeem people from that because he has people ready. Subsequently, uh, there were many nights that we would you know, lay around the dorm room talking about the Bible and about you know, what it means because I found out he'd grown up in a church his whole life, but he didn't know anything about the true gospel. He didn't know anything about the truth of scripture or theology and what he did know what he was taught was so jacked up that we had to unwind it all but I'll never forget this, another thing that he said to me during that semester and this one stings a good bit still he said to me why didn't you ever tell me this before why didn't you ever tell me this before and here I am boy that cuts you know that cuts because you're right you know what do I say? You know, I don't know, John. I did. I have known this since I was a kid. Yeah, we did go to elementary school together. We did go to high school all together. I was around you a lot. But you're right. I never did. I never. It's not until now that we're in college. 
And he wasn't saying it in an accusatory sort of a way. He wasn't accusing me of anything. He was just saying, why, why didn't you ever tell me this? And, and the reason he was saying that is he was saying, you could have saved me a lot of grief, you know, in my life. A lot of years of, you know, walking and living away from the Lord, doing things that I regret. And uh, I had no answer to his question. All I had was, was shame that, that, that he was right. I hadn't. And I had no excuse. I had no excuse. I'm sure in all those years leading up to that, I probably told, thought about that before, but I'm sure I came up with all the excuses you and I come up with all the time, right? Now he goes to church, he probably already knows, right? Stuff like that. Or, you know, I don't, I don't know. I don't know what to tell him, or I don't have the right answers, or I, maybe he'll ask questions, I don't know. Whatever. But here this whole time, God had somebody whose heart was ripe and prepared for the gospel. All he needed, all he needed was somebody to sit him down and walk through a, a little tract with no skill whatsoever. And he was ready. That's what Jesus was telling these guys. He said, men, if you'll go, if you'll just go, with whatever skill you have, with whatever ability you have, with whatever brain you have, with whatever charisma you have, with whatever persuasion you have, if you'll just go and deliver the message, I promise you, you'll find people who I've got ready to receive it. No doubt, you'll find plenty who will reject it, but there are people who will receive it. You just go, and you'll find them. There always will be there. Always will be there. Well, our time is way up. Let me just say this last one and put it up there because I think it's pretty self-explanatory. The other thing we don't know is we don't know how much opposition we'll face, but we know we'll face opposition. And Jesus, you can read this passage on your own tonight. He spends a lot of time talking to them about the opposition. And their ministries were going to flat out deal with some real painful opposition. Arrest, flogging, jail, eventually death. Probably in your evangelism and mine, none of those things are on the table. I doubt you'll be flogged. I doubt you'll be arrested. At least not yet. I doubt anybody will put you in jail. And I'm pretty sure nobody will kill you. But there will be people who will oppose you. In our culture, there will be people who will oppose you. And Jesus talks to them about that. But he tells them how to deal with it. He says this, If anyone does not receive you or listen to your words, what do you do? You walk out of their house and you do this number here. You kick the dust off of your feet and you head on to the next place. You don't sit around and you don't argue with them. You just kick the dust off and you move on to the next spot. That's what you do. They're going to be there. There are going to be people who reject the gospel. There are going to be people who hate the exclusivity of the gospel. That's what we're dealing with in our culture. Nobody likes the exclusivity of the gospel, the fact that Jesus is the only way to be saved. Nobody wants to hear that message. We're in a pluralistic society where everybody believes, you know, whatever you believe is fine for you and it will get you to heaven eventually. It's okay for you to believe in Jesus. Just don't tell me I can't worship Buddha or whatever. So our culture hates the exclusivity of the gospel. Our culture hates the social implications of the gospel. That's clear all around us. Whether it's a governor in Virginia rationalizing, ripping apart and murdering a baby who's been born and having a conversation about whether or not we should let it live or not. Or whether it's a senator sitting in front of a potential judge and grilling her about her faith and mocking the fact that she believes in social implications of her faith as though that somehow disqualifies her from public service. We see these things. We can't be fools about it. 
We can't, we can't live in fantasy land like there's unicorns running around and every time we open our mouths with the gospel, people are going to flock to Jesus. It doesn't work like that. There's opposition, and there will be. You'll find it in your families. You'll find it in your neighborhood. You'll find it in whatever circle you go about taking the gospel. Understand there's opposition. It's going to come. But there's always going to be fruit. Christ always has His people out there. They're ready. And I'll tell you, the opposition, excuse me, the fruit is worth the opposition. Just lead one person to Christ. Just lead one. And I promise you, you won't care about the opposition. You'll deal with ten you know, stubborn pains in the behind who just want to oppose you to get to one more who will believe. Well, I've talked way too long. You say, what's new? Um, I, I want to I close this out by just saying this. What is it that's keeping you? Is it the opposition that you're worried about? Is it are you worried about that you don't have something that you think you need? Is it you're worried about that somehow this is all based upon you and your ability to persuade or be charismatic or whatever? It, it didn't work that way for the apostles. That's never been the way Jesus sent people out. He's always said this. You go with what you have. I'll give you everything you need, and I will generate the results always. There's going to be people who oppose. There's a way to deal with it. You just knock the dust off your feet and you go to the next one and move on. And keep going. And just keep going. Keep taking the gospel. And you watch what I do. You watch what I do. So what's keeping you from it? What's keeping you from talking to that person that lives next door or across the street? Or that person that you know in your life orbit doesn't know Christ? What's keeping you? What's stopping you? Let's pray. Lord, you've been convicting my heart about this. I hope for my friends you've been doing the same this month as we've talked about this issue, you know, from the left and from the right and up and down. But still we find pause in our hearts, don't we? Lord, there's an enemy of our souls who has control, at least in limited ways, of the world around us, who's perfectly content with us going to church. It's perfectly fine with us living some sort of a Christian morality. But who'll put an all-out assault in our life, in our minds, in our hearts when we get out and start sharing our faith? And so often we don't. We sort of lock into a, a comfortable spot going to church and being good Christians to the best we can. Really even deceiving ourselves about that part. We pretend like these calls to go and make disciples don't apply to us. But they do. You've called us, every one of us, in some capacity to take the gospel. So Lord, I pray for my friends this morning as we continue to think about this. Identify in our hearts those barriers that are keeping us from obeying you in this area. And destroy them. Give us opportunity this week to tell somebody about Jesus and how they can come to know Him, even if it's a weak, feeble reading of a gospel tract. And we'll watch. And we'll see how you prove yourself faithful over and over again. Do your work in us, Lord, we pray for Christ's sake. Amen.